Let's begin. Hello, welcome. Uh, my name's John Chowcraft. I'm a professor in, uh, in the government department and work on history and politics from below in the modern Middle East. So uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you and the speaker. We're going to, this session is going to first involve a 25-minute talk uh, from Dr. Sarah Salem. Then I'm going to offer some commentary uh, as discussant, because I read the paper. And um, then the floor will be open for questions and answers, and we will be finished by 4.30. So um, if you kindly uh, silence your phones, this talk will be recorded. Uh, and so the main thing is we're here to hear um, Dr. Sarah Salem, who's uh, joined LSE in 2018 as an assistant professor after completing a postdoc at the University of Warwick. And her main research interests fall in political sociology, post-colonial studies, Marxist theory, feminist theory, and global histories of empire and imperialism. She's also an editor at the Journal of Historical Materialism, and she can be found on Twitter at Sarah, at Sarah Salem. And uh, her paper, of course, is called Travelling with Gramsci, Capital and the Afterlives of Empire in Egypt and the Middle East. So, uh, and, 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 you know, you have here an important researcher uh, around issues of the connections between post-colonial theory and Marxism, with special attention to Egypt, of course, and the period of decolonization in the mid-20th century. And there's engagements here with questions around traveling theory, post-colonial, anti-colonial nationalism, gender, feminism, and imperialism. Just to say, uh, I mean, the big thing, I mean, Sarah has published in uh, a whole string of important journals, Journal of Post-Colonial Studies, Review of African Political Economy. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome Sarah. Um, Thanks, John, for that very um, kind introduction. So I just have a few slides. Can everyone see them if I sit like this? Okay. Great. Okay, so thank you all for coming. Um, it's really exciting to give this talk because in, in a lot of ways it's kind of um, a wrapping up of this bigger project that I've been working on now for six years, I think. Um, so it's really kind of exciting and uh, therapeutic to be just giving giving a talk that's a more of a reflection actually on this process of um, researching with Gramsci in Egypt and the Middle East. So I wanted to start a little by talking about um, th this idea of traveling theory, which actually came to me about, I mean, I discovered it through Edward Said's writing on traveling theory about halfway through this project. Um, and I found it a really interesting and also provocative way of thinking about how we use paradigms that are established um, in one part of the world, in other parts of the world. So this is something I thought of during the project itself, but it was only later uh, that I started to really think about what it means to think about concepts like hegemony, passive revolution, the historical bloc. So concepts that Gramsci, you know, uh, created at a certain moment in time in a place like Egypt that's uh, obviously a post-colonial context. And so in some ways this paper is kind of like a, a belated attempt at reflexivity to really unpack some of the problematics that come up when we, when theories travel, but also to think of that as a very creative and radicalizing process as well. So not to see it necessarily as 
um, only problematic, but also to think about what kind of creative spaces open up when theories travel um, as they inevitably do. So in thinking about uh, Gramsci as a traveling theory, I did use Edward Said extensively, but actually I, two other theorists have been really central to this project. So one of them is Stuart Hall, who, um, as I'm sure many of you know, has been really central to thinking about Gramsci, um, especially in relation to questions of race and ethnicity. Um, and I think Stuart Hall puts it really beautifully when he talks about um, why he's found Gramsci so relevant to his own research. But I really appreciated as well Stuart Hall's kind of reflections on what it means to use um, someone like Gramsci uh, in a context like the UK. And he has this great quote where he says, we mustn't, we mustn't use Gramsci like an Old Testament prophet who will give us the right quotation at the right moment. Um, we can't pluck up the Sardinian from his specific political formation, beam him down at the end of the 20th century and ask him to solve our problems for us especially since the whole thrust of his thinking was to refuse this easy transfer of generalizations. So it was with this kind of spirit that um, I started to kind of think about this paper and what it means to, to do what Stuart Hall suggests here, which is to actually think the problems that we're interested in today in a Gramscian way. So this is part of a broader project that John mentioned, and this project essentially has looked at various political projects uh, in modern Egypt starting with uh, the project of Nasserism in 1952 and ending with, um, not really a project, but the ruling class that we had uh, just before the 2011 revolution. So it was an attempt to kind of understand how these different political projects emerged, um, what ruling classes made up these different projects, but more specifically how these ruling classes legitimized and um, constructed um, these different projects. And throughout this uh, research project, I found it really interesting that I almost kept coming back to the Nasserist moment or the Nasserist project. And to me, it seemed like this was a really interesting moment in which we can see um, a political project that was very contradictory in many ways, but also very powerful. And one that clearly has had very important afterlives um, into the presence. So it was really in trying to understand what I thought was a a type of singularity about um, the Nasserus project that I came to Gramsci and his idea of hegemony. And I found in this idea of hegemony a very unique articulation of what makes some political projects um, rule more effectively than others, uh, and specifically the way Gramsci thinks of consent and coercion. So this balance that he says has to exist between um, consent and how consent is created uh, on the one hand, but also coercion and violence and other forms of social domination. So the first argument that this project makes is that we, we can and, and should understand the Nasserist project as an instance of hegemony in modern Egyptian history. Um, and the second argument the project makes is that the absence or presence of hegemony in post-colonial contexts such as Egypt can only be understood by stretching the concept slightly, as, as Fanon would say. So in other words, when we look for or analyze hegemony in post-colonial contexts, it's, really it's really important that we center histories of empire and um, post-colonialism in understanding how hegemony is articulated or disarticulated. Um, and that's the focus of the talk today. So I'm gonna first begin by contextualizing um, Gramsci as a traveling theory and how hegemony kind of um, was created at this political moment in Egypt. 
And then I'm going to give two kind of connected points as to why I think it's important that we take the colonial and the post-colonial importantly when we think about hegemony in the Middle East more broadly. That was supposed to come earlier. Great, so coming back to Edward Said. So Edward Said actually wrote two texts on traveling theory. Um, in the first one, he was actually quite negative about this idea of traveling theory and um, argued that actually whenever theories travel, they always lose some of their power and some of what he called their rebelliousness. Um, so this was the first text that we, we have where he starts to engage with what happens when theories and ideas travel. But he actually changed his mind later on when he came back to this idea of traveling theory almost two decades later. Um, and he argued that actually sometimes traveling theories can actually become more radical as they travel. We have this quote here um, where he says, the first time a human experience is recorded and given a theoretical form formulation, it does have some kind of attachment or groundedness in the context that produces it. Um, but still, when it travels, this indicates more than just a process of borrowing or adaptation. It's actually a much richer um, process that we see happening when theories travel from one context to another. So tying this to Stuart Hall's call that we not use Gramsci like an Old Testament prophet, um, I want to think through what it means to think about Gramsci as a traveling theory uh, that actually becomes more radical when it moves to post-colonial contexts. Um, so I'm interested more in what happens to the theory concept particularly of hegemony when it travels, um, less than I'm interested in kind of taking a Gramscian framework and applying it to a concept, uh, a context like Egypt. So less in this process of uh, taking concepts and ideas that have been debated and discussed elsewhere, and then thinking of how they fit a context such as Egypt, and more in actually what can we learn by looking at what happens when the, the, the theory itself travels. And I think really central to why I find Gramsci uh, and his concept of hegemony as an especially interesting example of traveling theory is also because of Gramsci's own positionality. So his position as a Southern Italian intellectual. So in many ways, um, he was part of a very defined peripheral part of Italy that itself has often been um, peripheral to Europe and the European project. I think there's also something very interesting about Gramsci himself that um, has, you know, seeps into the concepts that he creates that makes him, I think, a bit more attentive to these questions of power and domination um, than perhaps even other Marxist theories, theorists. Gramsci, of course, has been very popular within post-colonial studies as a field, but he's also been quite popular uh, in the Middle East as a region, so historically and today as well. It's actually quite interesting to see how much engagement there is with Gramsci's ideas in contexts um, such as Egypt. And to think of this, uh, I want to refer to what Omneya Shakri calls um, the lost archive of Arab Marxism. So to really also contextualize um, the very rich histories um, of left, leftist debate and leftist interpretation um, of capitalism and colonialism that has existed in the Arab world of which Gramsci has been part and parcel of, um, but also to point to what Nazih Ayubi points out, which is that there has been for many um, activists and scholars in the Middle East, something in Gramsci's writings and texts that speaks to the context and the problems that they, they encounter. So he writes, Gramsci's writings are texts with which you can enter into a dialogue. They deal with issues that do concern us. 
Although they were written in Italy over half a century ago, the worries, aspirations, and debates contained in them seem to parallel seem to be parallel, parallel to our own, to Arab, and to international present-day concerns. So it's this positionality I want to um, especially highlight uh, that I think allows Gramsci's concepts to travel in ways that we might not necessarily see with other Marxist theorists or actually with other social theorists. So it's not necessarily an argument that we should see all concepts or all theories as being able to travel in the same way. I think there is something to be said as well about Gramsci's own positionality. But this is also not to flatten, I think, the distinction between southern Italy, even if we understand it as an internal colony, and Egypt, which was an external colony, nor to actually ignore that Italy itself had its own colonial imperial project in parts of Africa and um, the rest of the world. Um, and as I show later, there are still uh, important interventions that have to be made, I think, in, in this process of travel, precisely because uh, when we move to the post-colonial world, there are really important um, distinctions. So in terms of thinking through hegemony in Egypt, um, like I said earlier, hegemony put very simply is a process where a social force basically goes beyond its narrow interests and is able to universalize them to other groups. Uh, these other groups, importantly, are not just within the ruling class, but also within subaltern classes. So in many ways, hegemony is a very powerful project, precisely because it isn't necessarily just centered on creating consent within the ruling class, but also often within important subaltern classes um, as well. So Desmet uh, refers to it, I think, very helpfully as a consensual political practice. And the debate around this um, relationship between consent and coercion is obviously very long and very um, detailed in amongst Gramscian scholars, but I found it very useful to think of it in terms of uh, coercion almost being embedded within consent. So it's not necessarily a question of quantity. In many hegemonic projects, including Nasserism, there are actually high levels of coercion, social violence, um, domination, but the key, I think for me, at least in my research, has been this practice of consent. So to what extent is this coercion seen as legitimate or justified um, or part of a project that serves the nation as a whole? And I think that's been um, a really interesting way, actually, to think about projects um, such as Nasserism. So, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but I argue that Nasserism can be understood as a hegemonic political project. I also think hegemony is a really interesting way of understanding political change in modern Egypt um, for lots of reasons, which I'm happy to get into um, in the discussion, but especially because it, it sheds light a lot on both how projects are created ideologically, but also what the material and economic underpinnings of different projects are. I think in the case of Nasserism, um, in many ways it was the specific historical conjuncture in which it emerged that allowed it to create this hegemony. It came at this moment of decolonization, which was an opening in global politics in a way that we haven't seen since, at least. Um, but also because it was able to build on pre-existing radical energies that existed in Egypt before 1952, including from workers, students, nationalists, feminists. Um, Many of these movements actually had very contentious relationships with the Nasserist project, but in many ways Nasserism was able to co-opt these energies and um, build on them in ways that, again, uh, facilitated this project of hegemony. I think on the other hand, there's also a strong materiality to the Nasserist project that is part of the story of hegemony. If we think back to 
um, the infrastructural changes that happened, the nationalization of the Suez Canal, the Aswan Dam, the, the massive emphasis actually on um, creating some kind of welfare system, although of course it fell short of many of its expectations. I think these, the coming together of these ideological energies with this material project is um, really central to kind of understanding how uh, this project became hegemonic. Like I said, coercion was very much present, including with groups on the left, such as the communist movement, many leftist activists, um, the Muslim Brotherhood, not on the left, but as a social force that was very active at the time. So there was a very strong element of coercion to this project, but at the same time, there was a lot of political work that went into the creation of consent as well, um, including in things like civil society, education, media, um, international politics, all of these spheres actually became very important to how the Nasrus project established itself uh, as sort of hegemonic. These are, this is the free officer movement, for those of you who might not know, but the free officers essentially uh, who were responsible for the coup in 1952 against the British and that um, formed essentially the new ruling class that was made up. And that's Nasser there uh, in the middle. And finally, to kind of wrap up this section very quickly, I think it's also really uh, central to understanding this project by placing it within this international context that I mentioned was very crucial to the establishment of hegemony at this moment. And I think it would actually be really interesting um, to, to look at Egypt comparatively to other African and other Middle Eastern countries from this perspective, because there was obviously something very different about this moment compared to the moment we have afterwards that emerges in the 1970s. And so in many ways, it's precisely the international um, system that's coming apart and the new international system that's trying to be built that were also really central to uh, the creation of hegemony at this particular moment. And I'm going to turn now to um, the two main arguments that I want to make in relation to why it's important that we think of hegemony through this lens of the colony or the post-colony. So first, uh, I want to turn to this argument that various scholars have made, including uh, the Subaltern Studies School, who are a very influential school that came out of um, India in the 1970s, who made a very important intervention, which is that we can never have hegemony in the colony. Right? So the colonial context can never actually be a context in which a hegemonic system is created. Um, it's always in and of itself going to be a form of domination. And then the second argument I'll turn to later, which is that similarly in a post-colonial context, it's very difficult to think of the presence of hegemony without really taking seriously um, the presence of colonialism and anti-colonialism. So Rana Jadgoha, who wrote uh, a really, really amazing book uh, called Dominance Without Hegemony, um, was kind of the key scholar to make this argument within subaltern studies. Um, and this argument was essentially that post-colonial studies are different from former colonial powers for the central reason that their position within the global system is completely different. Um, and he looks particularly at the Indian case and argues that the Indian bourgeoisie was simply incapable of representing the Indian nation. And so their attempt at creating hegemony was never able to um, exist, essentially, because they could never actually create the consent that was needed in social, cultural, political, and economic life. So for him, uh, in the colony and the post-colony, 
coercion is always central. Coercion is always kind of the, de the determining factor. And he writes, it's clear that coercion comes before pers persuasion and all other elements. This precedence accrues to it by the logic of colonial state formation, for there can be no colonialism without coercion, no subjugation of an entire people in its own homeland by foreigners without the explicit use of force. So coercion prevails in domination as its crucial defining element. For that power had established itself initially by an act of conquest. And Siba Grovoki, uh, who's also uh, a, really, um, a really interesting theorist with an international relation, similarly points to the centrality of coercion in the colony and then by extension in the post-colony. And in some ways, that the sheer force or sheer amount of social violence that existed through colonialism and its aftermath um, almost rendered this idea of consent um, impossible. It's important to note, obviously, that this consent did exist to some extent within certain classes within both the colony and the post-colony. And I think here um, it's really good to remember Fanon's point about the national bourgeoisie that emerges, right? A class that is very much westernized, that is very much connected to Western capital and Western imperialism. And similarly in Egypt, you see a very interesting trend in the 1920s and 1930s of modernist, modernist intellectuals who similarly upheld European values and imperial values. But again, this sphere of consent was limited in the face of the amount of coercion that was still necessary often to maintain um, the colonial project. And I think this is especially the case in the, as we get closer to the 1950s and 1960s. But this raises the question of the post-colony. And in some ways, Goha and Grovogi are talking about the colony and the post-colony in a similar fashion, in the sense that the post-colony similarly can never be hegemonic. And Fanon has probably made this argument um, the most persuasively by arguing again that a post-colonial bourgeoisie can never actually attain full or meaningful independence um, at the end of colonial rule. And he has this really important breakdown in The Wretched of the Earth of why that's the case, why the economic system that has been set up by colonial rule is almost bound to replicate itself unless it's very forcefully interrupted. So in a sense, Fanon is actually also uh, providing a really a more extensive version of this idea of a Marxist ruling class, um, where we can see his quote to kind of stretch Marxism in action. So in a sense, both Fanon and Goha are kind of uh, positing that the colony and the post-colony are both spaces in which it's impossible uh, to create any type of hegemonic project. Um, but this is where I want to maybe counter the argument I don't know if it's convincing or not, uh, you can let me know, by arguing that actually because of the presence of anti-colonialism, um, there was actually the possibility, and I would argue the reality, of a hegemonic, hegemonic project in multiple post-colonial sites in the 1950s. Again, this is it's important to take this colonial context into account because actually anti-colonialism, I think, was mainly what allowed this hegemony to be created in the 1950s in a context like Egypt. So in a way, it's the response or reaction provoked by colonialism that creates this um, possibility or this moment of opening. So in this last section, which I'll 
do very quickly. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Nasserism as a reflection or a building on um, these pre-existing anti-colonial energies. And also to think a little bit about how nationalism very much provided um, this ideological vessel within which this could happen. And just to quote Arwa Saleh, who's a really uh, famous Egyptian communist here, who exactly argues that it's the language of nationalism um, that really influenced many of these radical movements and that similarly kind of was the, the pillar on which um, the Nasserist project and its hegemony was built. So, again, largely this was because of the international context that we find ourselves in. And here I think Vivian Jabri's argument about the post-colonial state as an interventionist state is really useful. So her point that actually it's not always the case that post-colonial states simply replicated dependency. In many cases, we see that they actually challenged it, that they did try to challenge what she argues was a colonial international. Um, similarly, the presence of radical internationalist movements like pan-Africanism, pan-Arabism, third worldism, Arab socialism were also very crucial to the establishment of um, a project like Nasser's hegemony. Um, and Arab socialism, I think, in particular, is really crucial here because it not only allowed Nasser to actually create consent within uh, the free officers and the ruling class more broadly, but Arab socialism was actually really influential as well in creating consent within Egypt um, and within the broader Middle East. And although many of these ideologies, um, like we know, contain very important contradictions, I think what matters less are these contradictions and more that it was able to still act as a unifying ideology across very widely differing um, populations. So David Scott has written, for example, that socialism was the name of this configured oppositional idea that emerged at this moment, and that what was contained within this vessel were these politics around anti-imperialism, nationalism, and anti-capitalism. At the same time, although Nasserism as a project was able to kind of put together this ideological vessel, this really would have been much more difficult without these nationalist or radical movements that we see emerging in Egypt in the early 20th century. And this is where you, could re you can really see the ingen ingenuity of this project in a sense that although it promised something new, um, it was very much built on not only pre-existing energies, but ideas that were already popular and quite, um, were already quite legitimate across many spheres of Egyptian society. So in a sense, the project was both old and new. It was made up of the past. It was made up of a lot of these dynamic energies, but promised a very different and almost articulate, articulate future. The tragedy here, of course, is that while building and using these energies, the Nasserist project in many ways um, not only decimated a lot of these projects, um, but also failed to actually achieve the radical goals that many of them had. So rather than the anti-capitalism that we see from workers, for example, uh, what we see emerged by the 60s is a very tightly controlled form of state-led capitalism. Um, rather than the radical democracy and anti-masculinist politics put forward by groups like feminists, um, we actually see an increasing shutting down of political space as we get closer um, to the 1960s and 1970s. Let's conclude very quickly. Okay, this is a picture of the Aswan Dam. So, so 
I think what I've tried to argue, or hopefully what I've argued in this um, presentation, is that the presence then of hegemony in a place like Egypt or, or post-colonial context more broadly can only really be understood uh, in relation to colonialism past and present. So either the absence of hegemony as we see in the co um, colonial context in Egypt or the presence of it in the post-colonial context. So the tragedy of colonialism more broadly is not only its production of forms of resistance that were mobilized for projects that continued, like Nasserism, but that actually that it disrupted very clearly um, alternative futures and alternative life worlds that existed um, before. So this is not necessarily to deny, obviously, the very real hopes that were invested in anti-colonialism, or, of course, the very real structural constraints that it faced, but it's rather to actually think more about the, the complexities and contradictions of this um, historical moment and what went into the building of these post-colonial projects um, that we came, that we seek that, um, coming afterwards. So in some ways, um, Gramsci obviously traveled to Egypt and I think in some ways probably would have, if he, if he had traveled to Egypt, would have found what he expected in some senses, but in other senses I think it's quite clear that Egypt is radically different from Italy, right? Still a colonized nation rather than a center of empire, and still very much having been drawn into a colonial capitalist system that it's still yet to um, break away from. Um, so I think actually Gramsci's quote, which is probably his most famous one, um, the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, interregnum a great variety of morbid symptoms appear, continues to be a really useful way of thinking about what's happened in Egypt since the fall of this project. Thank you. Okay, Carol Rick, uh, thank you very much. I, I think uh, that's what you've given us a treat. And um, it's very interesting. I think I understand uh, better now what, what, what's going on here and, and why it's interesting and important. I mean, to say, first of all, that I think it, this is, you know, these are vital debates and thematics. And, you know, in some ways, the, that subaltern studies, South Asia school, it sort of got lost eventually in all sorts of um, hermeneutic debates. And this, in part, in a way, is, is, looking, is uh, going back. And, I mean, the very couplet, ideology, materiality, tells us that we're not just dealing with a closed hermeneutic circle. So... Um, you know, that's an important body of, of, of work to go back to as well. And then, and of course, what you're doing is a sort of rereading because one of the premises of the Subaltern Studies project was to say we challenge the kind of bourgeois nationalist historiography of India and we're going to look at the subaltern. And, uh, and so, you know, there would be a challenge right there by implication to a kind of a Nasserism, a form of you know, state capitalism or something. And so that would be, as it were, too easily cut through and, and I think so what's going on here is and it's interesting because there are others doing similar sorts of things as saying well okay hang on a moment uh, you can because you know there's this whole scholarship like Partha Chatterjee who says nationalism is just a derivative discourse and we can't be bothered with it as it were uh, it's just and also Joseph Mass said uh, colonial effects on Jordan um, you know nationalism in Jordan is just a reproduction of a whole load of colonial epistemologies and juridical and disciplinary forms of power. Um, it's obviously there's a kind of a thinking back that's a bit different here, where you're saying, 
well, hang on. What about the way in which this sort of project, as a form of transformative activity, get got constructed? And um, you know, I'm thinking also of Abid Takriti's book on uh, monsoon revolution, because interesting, like because. He was doing this project, you know, interviewing ex-fighters from the third worldist national liberation socialist feminist project of Dafar in Oman between 1965 and 75. And, he, and a lot of the ex-militants are all uh, depressed and bitter and incorporate. They don't want to talk about it. But there's a, a new generation, as it were, that's looking at these, you know, memories of revolt, maybe, and thinking, well, how did they construct their... Their, uh, their projects and that Nasserist lens, in, uh, uh, Gramscian lens, in terms of thinking how you know a particular social force starts to universalize itself, you know, within a, a social formation as a whole, you know, how that process happens, that seems to be very appropriate to that kind of project. So it's also this is a very nicely written paper. It's a it's a pleasure to read. It's nicely laid out. It's it's uh, sort of well referenced. It's quite meticulous. Um, so, um, and, and, um, and, you know, that's a nice, I, I like this point that you make about how a, a theory can sort of be invested with new forms of urgency, even radicalism, as it travels. And I have to say, I think that's got to be relevant to Gramsci on anti-colonialism, because, you, because, you know, Stuart Hall has this thing that Gramsci, yes, you know, ethnicity, race, empire, and, you know, a couple of times in the paper you say, Gramsci had spent a lot of his early writings talking about race, imperialism, and the thing is, that could be a bit overstated, mm -hmm. because Gramsci, uh, you know, he comes from Sardinia, he has this moment of, uh, of Sardinian nationalism, but then he puts it to one side, in fact, quite strongly rejects it after a while, and then um, he, 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 um, he, I mean, in some ways, he doesn't take Italian imperialism very seriously because he thinks that the real imperialism is with that which places capital in the colony. And because the Italians who are busy doing something nearly genocidal in Cyrenaica and Tripolitania between 1922 and 1931, it, he just calls it the Libyan War. Mm. You know, he just calls it the Libyan War. Uh, and he doesn't, you know. And he meets, he meets some of the ex-fighters when he's first interned on Ustica, mm -hmm. and you know he doesn't. It doesn't lead to a particularly rich sort of analysis. So anyway, just to say, even though obviously I respect the the Stuart Hall idea, and I think that's important. Uh, it's not. It, it's more. You know, I actually think your idea that there's a, a a traveling moment where a Gramscian framework is invested with an anti-colonial content. As, a, as an enrichment and as a form of radicalization, I think you could push that further. Because, but because, because to me, to me, you know, because you say Gramsci is a southern intellectual. Well, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. See, the most famous southern intellectual in Italy of his day was Benedetto Croce, who was a sort of, you know, arch-Italian idealist, his sort of patrician theorist, a philosopher, and, and Gramsci spent his whole life trying to sort of refute him in one way or another. That's one wing of the southern intellectuals of Italy. Another wing is, is the, the, this, um, the, 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 the Italy as a great proletarian nation, which is due to colonize in Libya. So there's a whole colonizing discourse on the left 
that Gramsci rejects, to his credit, and that's part of the split with Mussolini, because Mussolini's on the left before the First World War. But, but, uh, but um, uh, uh, he, so he rejects it. So, you know, he's not a colonialist, but on the other side, is he a southern intellectual in the Italian sense at the time? Uh, you know, he's an intellectual of the Turin Factory Council movement in the north, and, and his thing about the south is, you know, the, and, and that essay on the southern question, remember, it's only, like, 15 pages, and he starts to write it in 1926, so he's already been going for quite a long time. But it's his idea, you know, how do we create an alliance between peasants and working class within the framework of the national popular in, in, in Italy? But that broaches exactly the sort of question you're interested in, Nasserism, how it, within the framework of the national popular, how does it create a new kind of social force? So... So, so, you know, I, I, I think while I, 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 I do, I think there's, see, to me, the reason why Gramsci is a traveling theory is because of his, of, of, of his, uh, what Peter Thomas calls his absolute historicism, because he, he's, it's open to new investments. That's why it's a traveling theory, in my opinion. Not because he's a southern intellectual, because, you know, I mean, what about Marx? Marx is a traveling intellectual, but he's, he's, his, his is a traveling theory, but, you know, it doesn't come from any southern position. So anyway, that but 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 uh, regardless of what you think of the, so, but I think that that could underline and, and extend that interesting idea that that, that I, I believe you you picked up on that it, it, the, because Gramsci as it travels into feminism, anti-colonial nationalism, anti-racism, even ecology, uh, gay struggle, LGBT issues. It, it, it's, it has to be invested in new ways that are probably more radical, you know, than the original. So it, it, you, could, you could argue, you know. And, I, and, I, and that's a more interesting way of looking at it than this lament for a lost revolutionary communism, which is a very common way to look at Gramsci. Oh, he was the true revolutionary communist, and we've all lost because of the high watermark of 1917, and, and wasn't it marvellous? And so, um, but that brings me on to... The other issue, which is, um, you know, maybe in the same way that Gramsci doesn't articulate a critique of Leninism, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I just wonder if, see, it's a tall order to take on and re-invest re, um, anti-nationalism with this kind of special significance in, in the present, yeah. right? Uh, because in the present, uh, we, you know, we nationalism. I mean, I mean, Gramsci is a theorist of, of the historical present, and and he was interested in the national popular because how it would serve in building a historic block. So nationalism in the present can it serve these tasks? Is it going to unite, you know, workers and peasants in, in you know, or or you know, LGBT and feminist and other, you know, if we read Nicola Pratt, who's working with Gramsci and optics on. Modern Egypt, she'll tell us, well, no, not really. A, a national, national sovereignty, state security, all these things are sort of suppressive of alternative, of bodily autonomy, rights, uh, queer, same-sex activity, or, or whatever. So, so, you know, nationalism in the present, it's a tall order, actually, I think, to... And, um, and, and you know, there's that issue about anti-colonialism. You know, anti-colonialism's one thing, but nationalism is something else. Uh, you know, anti-colonialism, as you rightly say, comes in many forms. There's the feminism, there's the socialism, there's also the Islamism, and there's the whole 19th century where, where you know, it's it's not we're not dealing with nationalism. We're dealing with appeals to custom, with appeals to Islam, with appeals to all sorts of things. 
And uh, so, because, so, you know, there, in your, I wonder about the point you had, you'd really, you want to insist on this binary, colonialism, nationalism, and it comes out quite strongly. Mm. And, I, and I think that could be interrogated mm. because, you know, colonialism in the present, you know, because otherwise you're, you, you, the question of, because there's a betrayal, isn't there? By the 60s, something is betrayed, but it's not nationalism, it's, it's something else. Mm. But, and so you sort of recuperate the true essence of nationalism. And uh, so I wonder about that, because, um, you know, it, it's like you, you keep the... Ver nationalism is, is the founding virtue. Like if we think of Yassine Nourani on, on, on nationalism in, in culture and hegemony in the Middle East, again using a Gramscian optic, he, he shows how the idea of virtue is transformed into the idea of being a loyal, you know, son, often it is, of the nation. So there's that whole... You know, but you, it's almost like you retain nationalism and colonialism because it's also how you produce this idea that uh, colonialism cannot be hegemonic. And, um, and, you know, if you look, say, the history of the GCC, I mean, it's very different to the history of Egypt. And I, and I wonder about this, you know, magisterial sweeping narrative that the Subaltern Studies School come up with South Asia because colonialism has all sorts of investments and supports from local princelets and all sorts of things and the actual you know before 1860 in india the british art the army is not very big you know just a, a few bits of, you know it's not my field of expert before 1857 in fact but um but anyway just to say so uh so i want so anyway my two things are yeah um very interesting on traveling theory and uh but that but but then the question of what makes it travel and then this binary of, of colonialism and nationalism. And um, because we have to think about the present, mm. you know, and, and, and in what ways does this flash up at a moment of danger in the present? And colonialism and nationalism. I mean, I'm also thinking of Gennaro Gervasio, you know, another Gramscian who's published in Arabic, but his critique of Egyptian Marxists is that they are nationalist, mm. you know? Mm. And so, and, and that Nasserist project, you know, in terms of defining a kind of an Egyptian nationalism, and, you, you know, we could extend that to 2011, because the idea of popular sovereignty, national authenticity, it helps to enshrine the army as the guardian of the honor of the, 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 the nation's honor. So it has all those issues mm -hmm. along. And, and, you know, so, so just the, the final thought being, um, because, so far as, because the part of your project that makes perfect sense, Gramsci's obsessed with the national popular, so why not? But, but he's only obsessed with it because of the politics of his day. And maybe in the present, you know, there could be more to be said about the transnational popular, you know, so that would, that would be. But anyway, like I said, I think it's super engaging, I think it's very accomplished, I think it's very important, and you, you're doing lots of uh, very interesting things uh, with a sort of a living Gramsci, which is precisely you know what what is the what's productive and, and important i think about about that uh, that perspective Thanks. should i respond first or? well i think you, you're entitled to aren't you yes. <laughs> so yeah thank you for those really um useful points i think so to start with the question of anti-colonial nationalism i think that there is no project of recovery in the present in and of itself. I don't think, I mean, I think, and this is why I stress the singularity of that moment, but also of that project, because I don't, there is no, not only did it not achieve what it set out to achieve, 
but let, let alone the idea of recovering that in some way today, I think is completely impossible. And also an attempt to do that, uh, very dangerous, which is to some extent what we saw with Sisi several times already since 2013, an attempt to actually invoke this uh, project, this form of nationalism in the present and, and what that led to. I think my idea of anti-colonial nationalism is also based on the idea that many radical movements did articulate many of their politics through a national lens. And although we today might be uncomfortable with that or might want to insist uh, on why that's problematic, I think it's difficult to dissociate those two ideas at that particular moment. So even fe the feminist movement, um, the communist movement, for definitely the leftist movement, I think their politics were articulated through a frame that combined these ideas of anti-colonialism and nationalism. I think they had very different articulations of what nationalism meant or how the relationship between the state and the nation should be articulated. But I think to say that you know those radical movements were not nationalist or did not um, embody a nationalist cons consciousness um, is a bit trickier. And I think that we can see people like Arwasal afterwards um, reflect on this and really say that was our mistake, actually. You know, it was the way we related to the nationalist state project was a mistake. And this is the, you know, what we see in a lot of communist memoirs and, and leftist memoirs in the 70s and 80s was really this moment of uh, we messed up or we didn't really think through certain categories in the way that we should have. Um, but those, I think that I, that moment was in many ways um, kind of embedded within this nationalist politics. But that's where I think actually Joseph Massad's argument is really important in the sense that he says, you know, there was, was there another option outside of strategic nationalism? but that the mistake that was made was that this was not seen as a strategic moment. It was seen as a long-term project in, in the sense that we now still have these nationalist, nationalist projects with us. But I think it is worth reflecting on this question of what were the politics of that time in the sense of was there an option outside of an ideology that, would, that did cut across so many groups and so many um, parts of society and that was also internationalist at that particular moment. Um, without saying that it didn't have its contradictions or its problems. And I think those contradictions and problems, that's what the next generation faced uh, very clearly and what we continue to face today. I think that's why also the idea of the tragedy or the failure of anti-colonial nationalism is important to emphasize in the sense that there is no recovery of this project because also of how monumental um, that betrayal, that I mean, I call it a betrayal, was. And I think that's where you can start to see the tensions between, for example, what workers were calling for in terms of uh, you know, an anti-colonial movement that was anti-capitalist and what the Nasserus project eventually culminated in, which was a very state-led capitalist um, form of accumulation. And I think that that moment you can start to see really the massive sort of tensions within this project uh, and the ways in which these state nationalist projects did betray kind of this cause, while at the same time the cause itself I think was also at question. And I think that's something you can see in the reflections that come afterwards on particularly on nationalism, I think. So I think for example in you know the communist and leftist movements, I think their disappointment or their uh, 
disillusionment was not with anti-colonialism. I think it was with the nationalist element of that formula. I think people like Arwa Salha were more disappointed in themselves for adopting or for um, performing this, the nationalist side of that element more than the anti-colonial. And I think they did realize at some moment that maybe there were other ways of, of creating an anti-colonial project that was not nationalist um, in that sense. So, but yeah, that's a, a really important um, point to make. I think the idea of a Southern intellectual, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think sometimes it is overstated, especially um, the argument that Gramsci had a very strong analysis of race, uh, but also of empire. I think his position as a Southern intellectual or as a, as, as a Sardinian intellectual more accurately is, is interesting because I wonder to what extent that, that's why his work is so infused with this question of core and periphery, which I think is often what kind of injects a lot of his concepts with uh, an element that's very useful in a post-colonial context. So I would position him, or I position him as a Southern Italian, less to say that that meant that he saw himself that way or that he talked about the Global South in any way, but more to ask, well, I think there is a very careful attention to core and periphery in Gramsci that even in Marx, I think you would have to do a bit more mm -hmm. stretching or injecting to get to that um, dynamic than you do in Gramsci because he already was to some extent, I think, um, attuned to that in a way that is useful rather than the fact that he directly analyzed the question of imperialism, which is interesting because many neo-Gramscians tried to make that argument that he was, he was a thinker of imperialism, which I think is quite a stretch. Well, but he does think it in terms of political economy, but not yeah. in terms of race no, exactly. or civilization. Remember, he's an adherent of modern civilization. And so, you know, he, it's the, it, no, sure there's a political economy. Mm. I mean, if you're a Peter Thomas, like, a, you know, more or less a classical Marxist, you think all of that's marvellous. Yeah. And you don't, you don't, you sort of ignore the fact that he doesn't talk about as much race and culture. But he talks about it a bit, but, you know, much more than most Marxists. So yeah. that's why Stuart Hall can pick up on it and say, oh, you know, thank goodness there's some kind of analysis mm. here where we don't usually find that in classical Marxism. So the floor's open. Sorry, I'm cheering, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So yeah, thank you, Sarah. That was um, really great, and um, the discussion was was very interesting as well. And I wanted to kind of pick up on the on the nationalism um, discussion. And my, my comment would be typical from a Levantine and a Syrian, because you know when we talk about if we want to historicize nationalism mm -hmm. at the time. It's, it is a transnational nationalism because of the tensions between like Arab nationalism and state building within Egypt. And mm -hmm. I actually think if, if like the, the Arab nationalism aspect of what was going on um, in addition to the third worldism, um, like if, if that is kind of foregrounded, mm -hmm. the, the, um, like the dynamics of hegemony are easier to, to kind of pick up because mm -hmm. that's like the, the media the media discourse at, at the time like the popular culture 
um, in the way that citizens in Egypt and in the Arab world were, were addressed. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, was very new at the time, like to address Egyptians as Arabs or, or other Arabs as um, like kind of implicated in the Egyptian state building project. Mm -hmm. We can see kind of like an, a new way of, of subject formation that is hegemonic internally in Egypt and, and externally to other to other Arab countries. So my question mm -hmm. is, how does like that transnational aspect of nationalism feature in your mm -hmm. analysis? Shall we take a, a, a few others? Because that's a, obviously an interesting, important question, but we could, um, and um, you know, any question tickling away. Doesn't have to be at high levels of abstraction, could be something, uh, you know, or whatever. <coughs> Yes. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a question with regards to Sabah Mahmoud's work because I'm currently in the midst of writing an essay on her work. And so my question would be that when you argue that there is a possibility of a hegemonic project emerging in a post-colonial, then how would that be analyzed in terms of the you know the forms of ethical resistance that the Islamic revival movement was like in the process of constructing, like mm. you know, say. How do we consider those two strands and think about the questions of agency and freedom, you know, mm. within that context? Mm. All right. So why don't we the yeah the transnational mm. question about Egyptian nationalism, Arab nationalism, and then. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Omar. I think that's a, a really great question. I think that this trans, the transnationalism of nationalism, which is a great way to put it, um, was actually really central to, to, to Nasserism as a whole. I mean, I think Nasserism in many ways was, um, although articulated as a nationalist project, was very dependent on this logic of Arab socialism and pan-Arabism more broadly. And I think you can see this very clearly in um, the way in which consent was created through things like the voice of the Arabs, like this radio station that was not, I think, imagined as a domestic or a local, only as having a domestic audience, but was very much, I think, um, invested with this idea of Arabism or thinking about how can we reach and influence um, the entire Arab world. I think Nasserism as a project, and I think that's why Vivian Jabri's work is so interesting, is that it was a project that tried to intervene in global politics and transnational politics as well. I think often um, this moment of decolonization in the global south is always read as a moment of just local national politics. So each, we're just seeing these, you know, these successive national projects that are decolonizing individual nation states. But I think a lot of these um, nationalist projects were actually internationalist in the sense that they were trying to intervene and create a different international order. And I think moments also like the nationalization of the Suez Canal is really interesting in that it was not just speaking, I think, to a local audience, although of course that was a big part of it, but was, I think, also part of this attempt to build a different type of um, international. I think there's a great book coming out now with Princeton called World Making After Empire, where um, she looks at also other various African states that were decolonizing at the same time and says that a lot of these were internationalist um, projects as well. 
And I think there is a Eurocentric move sometimes to assume that they could never have been able to intervene um, in international projects. Yeah, but I think that's a really interesting point also about how we think about nationalism today that's quite different than I think how it was articulated in the 50s, which was um, outside, I think, of the binary that today very clearly exists sometimes between the national and the transnational, where I think nationalist politics were understood more transnationally than they often are today. Um, and so I think that was a very crucial feature, actually, of, of the way um, these projects emerge. But similarly, uh, also, I think that's a big reason why 1967 is such a crucial moment and where we can really see the end of the Nasserist project or the end of, of the hegemony of this project because I think that the defeat to Israel was such an, an it was a moment that really completely transformed the entire Arab world and that's where you can see again this link between this hegemonic project inside Egypt but the way it's articulated um, across the Arab world as being very that's no wonder then it was such a, a massive moment for Egyptians as well because of this kind of articulation that answered it. Saba yeah. Mahmoud. Um, so maybe just say who, who like what the book is about. Just oh, yeah. one sentence on the book yes. so that people. So Saba Mahmoud. Um, so she wrote this book called The Politics of Piety, um, which is a really. Uh, I mean, it was a really groundbreaking analysis that looked at uh, the, um, the women's mosque movement in Cairo. And she essentially was arguing that how can we understand women uh, who choose to be part of this mosque movement as exercising agency? Um, so kind of against this liberal feminist tendency to assume that women who choose to be part of movements that can be described as illiberal are actually um, lack agency. So her argument was like, actually, that we need to really think about the, I don't know, it's a hard book to summarize. It's, you have to really think about the assumptions that we have in liberal feminist theory around who can exercise agency, basically. So I think the Islamic revival movement, which of course comes later, uh, in a way is more, I think, something that we see coming up in the 70s and 80s, but I think is, is also, and other people have written about this, but is an important symptom, I think, of the crisis that emerges in 1967, essentially, which is where we see the decline of this project and the rise of Egypt's um, neoliberal project. But that's when you start to see also new new forms of uh, Islam, Islamist kind of um, social movements that I think are also symptomatic of the questions that were raised by 1967 and this defeat that was interpreted differently by different actors. So I think many Islamist groups interpreted 1967 in relation to the f problems they saw with Egyptian society, for example, in the 60s and how, how this leads to this revivalist movement. So that's what I would say. So is it agency or is it not agency? It's <laughs> <laughs> a different talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Yes, um, a question concerning Gramsci's uh, uh, conception of uh, hegemony. Uh, one of the key moments of imperfection of this concept, uh, this goes along well through the prison notebooks, is not num uh, number 22, uh, mm -hmm. the one on Americanism and Fordism. Uh, and I think that the central quote there is when he says, um, hegemony is born in the factory. 
me, he's studying at the moment um, for this map, both in the United States and uh, in, uh, in Italy, Turin, obviously. Uh, and he's uh, uh, speaking of uh, uh, hegemony dynamics uh, being developed on the shop floor, uh, on the workplace, uh, in, on a micro level, so to say, uh, on, even on how wages work, etc. etc. Um, is this micro aspect of the general taking into account in your research, in your analysis, mm -hmm. not only nationalism, but on how uh, work uh, uh, functions? And uh, more broadly, is it taken into account in, can it be taken into account in uh, post colonial uh, studies? I'm a bit under the impression, I don't know much about it, but I'm a bit under the impression that it's one of the aspects that gets lost in the traveling of, of the field. Uh, it might be interesting because, um, yeah, Gramsci used this and the quote precisely comes from his analysis of the United States, so an industrialized country, but he's not, he was mostly analyzing the, uh, mostly analyzing Italy in the moment, it was becoming mm. for the uh, slowly adopting or fully partially adopting mass production, etc., etc., so it was some kind of a modernizing, not a, not a modern, but a modernizing context. Mm. Can it be used? Who uses it? Are you using it? Mm. It's micro level of mm. the general. Mm. 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 Good question. Uh, thank you, Professor, for this uh, for the start. Uh, I just want to go back to this the notion of uh, I like the idea of the transnational nationalism mm. uh, in, in its in its anti-colonial context of the of the nineteen sixties. How I mean, even if you look at the the rhetoric of the Cuban Revolution and, and Che and Fidel of, of the International Socialist Revolution is actually adapted to the national self-determination struggle of people in Angola, Mozambique, mm -hmm. Algeria. <clears throat> so you see that the context matters in shaping the idea of around international revolution, international social 